Um, this Sunday, Easter Sunday, we did a little three-part series where we stepped back and what we're going to do was just open up the scriptures and, and see that Jesus Christ and the heralding of what he was going to bring to sinners, the way he was going to save lost people just isn't a New Testament concept. That the heralding of Christ and the way he was going to redeem lost people was God's plan A from the beginning. He didn't get through the end of the Old Testament and then start twiddling his thumbs and get a sweaty brow and start trying to figure out, okay, you know, my, my Old Testament scheme failed. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen now. I need to whip something up. Oh, let's go to plan B. Let's go to the New Testament. Let's insert Jesus into this thing and let's bring about a way to save people. That's not God's plan. Plan A from the beginning, Genesis, is we see the Old Testament constantly screaming and pointing forward that there is this one who is to come, there is this one who is going to usher in salvation, and through him and his death and his burial and his resurrection, he is going to be the one who finally sacrifices himself once and for all. No other shedding of blood will ever have to come. Through his actions, through his work, he will be able to be the one who redeems us and makes us right with God. And we're going to see that again today. So if you will remember, as we open up scriptures, Brian Hubert came to us through Genesis 22. We saw Abraham and Isaac. We saw how that foreshadows and points forward to Jesus as our substitute. Last week, Pastor John, he taught to us from Exodus chapter 12. We looked at the Passover how the Passover lamb makes people right, and how Jesus ultimately is that Passover lamb. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 53. So what we're going to do is something just a a bit different. We're actually going to have sort of two main texts, so to speak. Our, Our big main text is going to be Isaiah 53. So if you want to turn there and find Isaiah 53... But what we're going to do is look at Isaiah 53 through the lens of a person's encounter with this verse, with these verses, with this chapter of Isaiah, and that's going to be found in the book of Acts. We're going to see that there is an evangelist, a man who is telling people about Jesus named Philip. He's going to have an encounter with a person named the Ethiopian eunuch, and these two are going to have a conversation about Isaiah 53. So I'm going to have you find both of those places because we're going to be looking at both of those scriptures and we're going to learn what's going on in Isaiah 53 as we look through the lens of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch as they encounter and interact around these verses from Acts chapter 8. But before we get started, what I want to do is just let the word um, wash over us. We're going to read Isaiah 53. We're going to read verses 4 through 9. Then I'm going to pray and then we will get started. These are the words of our God through our brother Isaiah as he penned this message about the suffering servant. This is Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 9. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All of us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. 
And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Let's pray. Christ, we worship you on this Easter Sunday. We celebrate your resurrection from the dead. Jesus, you strode forth as the victor, the conqueror of death, the conqueror of hell, and the conqueror of all opposing might. Jesus, you alone burst the bands of death and have trampled the powers of darkness, and it is you who live forever. Jesus, you came forth from the prison house of the grave, free and triumphant over Satan, sin, and death. Jesus, you were the man of sorrows who was crowned with thorns, but now rule and reign as the Lord of life, wreathed with glory. Once you bore no shame more deep than yours, no agony more bitter, no death more cruel, but now you have no exaltation more high, no life more glorious, no advocate more effective. What more could be done that you have done? Your death has brought us life. Your resurrection has brought us peace. Your ascension is our hope, and your prayers for your saints are my comfort. God, I pray that you would work now, and through the proclamation of your word, that you, Holy Spirit, would find it pleasing to come and dwell in this place as we turn our mind's eye to Resurrection Sunday, the the day that, that Christ burst the bonds of death and crushed death to death. This is the day we as believers come and magnify Christ for no one in all of eternity past or eternity future could accomplish what our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished on this day. And that is cause for rejoicing. God, we love you. Through me now, your servant, magnify the Son, Jesus Christ. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. As I've said, all of the Old Testament is screaming forth, forward to Christ. We've seen that in Genesis 22, two weeks ago. We saw it last week in Exodus chapter 12. When you're reading through the Old Testament in various ways, various shapes, and various forms, we see Christ peeking and showing himself in some way, yes, a shadowy way, a way where we, we may not be able to say, yes, that, that specifically was Jesus of Nazareth, that one who was going to come, the Son of God cloaked in flesh, but we see these different things like the people popping up like Noah or Moses um, or David, or we see various types of um, places like the temple, or um, sacrifices, different offerings, different way that the, the people of Israel are supposed to eat and not eat. We see different uh, things like the prophets and the priests and the kings, and all of these from the Old Testament are supposed to come together in like a big flashing neon sign with an arrow pointing forward to the New Testament. And then you even have the people in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament, going back and grabbing these things from the Old Testament, and they're 
they're weaving them all together so that they can present to us one solid monolithic message that comes from Genesis to Revelation where they grab all of this evidence, they put it before us and go, everything that you read in scriptures is about Jesus Christ. And so when we step back and we read the Old Testament, it is good for us to have this lens on so that when we come, we don't just read things out of Leviticus about these just ridiculous sacrifices and go, man, that was good for them, but what does this have to do with me? What it has to do for you is Jesus Christ grabs those things and he fulfills them, himself being the ultimate sacrifice. Why was it important for Israel to come together and worship at the temple? Because of this, the temple was the very place that the presence of God dwelt among his people. But now Jesus Christ, the temple of God, the very presence of God has come and he has tabernacled with us. He has come and dwelt with us. And now we go forward as the temple of God with the very presence of God, the Holy Spirit living with us. All the Old Testament points to forward, comes together, finds its fulfillment in Christ. So as we come together, and today what we're going to do is see that this is true, and this is true of Isaiah chapter 53. As you do various readings, what you, you, most of you would know is that there are four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but a lot of people call the book of Isaiah the fifth Gospel, the Gospel found in the Old Testament. Because the way Isaiah writes and the visions that God gave to this prophet, almost all of his stuff is constantly screaming, pointing forward, going, there's one who's going to be with us. There's one going to be named Emmanuel. There's one who's going to be born of a virgin. There's going to be the servant who is going to come. The servant is the Messiah. The servant's going to suffer. The servant's going to die. The servant is going to redeem his people and make God's people right with God. And the book of Isaiah is constantly screaming and grabbing this theme of the Messiah, of the suffering servant, grabbing this truth, and it's going to ultimately point forward to Christ. So what we're going to do is we're going to step back and go, okay, if if this is true, what is is going on here? How how do we work through this? What, What is going on in Isaiah chapter 53 that presents itself forward to us as, yes, this is talking about Jesus? And what we're going to do is we're going to step back and look at Acts chapter 8. So open up in your copy of Scripture. What we're going to do is is work our way through Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 35. And what you're going to see is that there's a key portion in here where Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch are going to come together and they're going to have a conversation that revolves around a couple of verses specifically out of Isaiah chapter 53. And so what I want you to do is just sort of think um, like you're, you're watching um, a movie or a, or a three-part play. So we're going to read a certain portion of the book of Acts, and we're going to see the Ethiopian eunuch is engaging, he's encountering, he's interacting with this text from Isaiah 53. And then like most good movies, if they want to somehow present some information in just a non-bland way, a good movie can somehow or sometimes employ this idea of the flashback. Right? There's some key bit of information that's going on in the present, but for us, the audience, since we don't know what's going on, they, the movie, the producer, the director presents a flashback, goes back to some key event in the past that informs this action that's going on in the present. 
And that's going to happen here. The writers of the New Testament employ this same type of idea when they go back and they grab certain key events or key places, key times, or they go back and they grab certain bits of Scripture. And we're going to see that here. There's going to come a place where the, uh, Luke, the writer of Acts, gives us this flashback to Isaiah 53. So we're going to jump back into Isaiah 53 for a very quick time and see, okay, so what exactly was going on here that is going to inform the conversation between Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and then once we see what Isaiah was talking about there, what we're going to do is flash forward back and to see how does this interaction with these verses from Isaiah 53, how does it play out? What conclusions, what response happens from the Ethiopian eunuch as he engages this text from Isaiah 53? So, when you look at the book of Acts, what we have is this. This is the gospel writer Luke. So Luke has the, the gospel of Luke, and then he writes for us the acts of the disciples, the acts of the apostles. So we're not meant to see Acts and Luke as like just two completely separate books, but this is like part two of Luke's big work that he puts forward. And at the beginning of Acts, there's this one verse, Acts 1.8, where Jesus is talking to the disciples as he's about ready to ascend to the right hand of the Father. He basically says this, the gospel, the good news that you guys have, it's going to take root here in Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And what we're going to see here is that in Acts chapter 8, that's exactly what's going on. The gospel is blooming. It's taking root in Jerusalem. But on the heels of persecution, where people who did not like what Jesus stood for, they start persecuting the church, and the believers in Christ, the Christians, are going to flee. And as they flee, they don't leave the gospel back in Jerusalem, but as they flee, the gospel goes with them. And then we jump right into Acts chapter 8, and that's going on, what's going on here. And Luke picks up a key guy who's doing this very thing. His name is Philip. And Philip is going to have an encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. Look there in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he, the eunuch, invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch turned, looked to Philip, and said this, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? So what we have here is a snapshot into Philip's life. The Spirit of God is leading Philip. Philip was up in Samaria. There was one key road that connected Jerusalem to this city called Gaza, which is on the Mediterranean rim right there. 
the last city that basically had a good, healthy water supply for anybody who was going from that area of the ancient Near East where Israel was down to where the Ethiopian eunuch would have been traveling, which would have been south of Egypt, was Gaza. If you want water to survive the trip until basically you get from Gaza down to Egypt, where you go is Gaza. And there is one direct route from Jerusalem, one road down to Gaza. And so as Philip is taking the gospel up in Samaria, the Spirit of God comes and says to him, you need to tuck tail quick. You need to go to Jerusalem, get on this road, and make your way down to Gaza. Why? At this, for a certain point in time, he wasn't for sure. But then he rises up. He goes, God calls him, he says yes, and as he was going, there was an Ethiopian eunuch who was on this road going from Jerusalem, who was making his way down to Gaza. Why? Because he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And it wasn't uncommon in that day, as someone was to be reading something, to be reading something out loud. Most of us read quietly, but in that day, it was almost a proper act to when you were reading something, because not everyone necessarily could read, to be reading something out loud. And so you can almost picture this in your mind as Philip is walking up on this chariot. He's running toward it. The chariot is going from Jerusalem down to Gaza. And as Philip's getting closer, if we were like watching this movie or watching this play, you could almost hear the volume of the Ethiopian eunuch, his volume getting louder and louder as Philip comes running up on him. And as Philip is running up on him, he's hearing this guy reading from the book of Isaiah, what we would know as Isaiah chapter 53. And as Philip runs up on him, He hears him reading, and he asks him this question, do you understand what you are reading? And the guy says, man, I don't know what I'm reading. I know I'm reading Isaiah, but I can't make sense of what's going on, the context surrounding these two verses. I can't make sense specifically of these two verses, verses 7 and verses 8. And it draws the Ethiopian eunuch to ask a specific question of this text, which is the, the question that we should be asking, that anybody should be asking. Notice that there's a lot of language, the he and him language going on there. The Ethiopian eunuch picks up that as Isaiah is writing in Isaiah chapter 53, he is speaking specifically about a key individual, a key figure, right? Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the scriptures show us that the question that comes on the Ethiopian eunuch's lips is the right question to be asking when reading this specific chapter. The scriptures don't chastise him. They don't step back and go, the buffoon. Of course he should know what's going on here. He's a God-fearer. He's been traveling to Jerusalem. He's been worshiping there. He's been reading. Well, of course he should know who this is talking about. The Scriptures don't do that. The Scriptures present for us that the question that should be on our mind as we interact specifically with Isaiah 53 is, who on earth is this guy? I mean, who can accomplish this stuff? And if we're watching that movie, that would be sort of that first part of that movie, the first part of that act where you see this engagement between Philip rushing up, asking, do you know what you're saying? The eunuch saying, I have no clue what's going on. I've just been reading Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. Who on earth is talking about? Who is this guy? What's going on here? And then what the movie would do in my, in my mind's eyes, I see this playing out, is it would fade to black. And as it would fade to black, it would fade in on a scene seen several hundred years before, and what you have is this, this prophet, this prophet Isaiah, 
And as he was writing and as he is hearing from God, what he's doing is he's, he's writing a portion of this book to people, to God's people. And specifically inside Isaiah, from chapter 40 to chapter 55, God is giving Isaiah a message of hope. Because in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah's lived around the 700s, but God knows that there's a time in the 500s where Isaiah's people specifically, the kingdom of Judah, they're going to be hauled off into slavery. And God is employing Isaiah almost 200-something years before his people, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, are hauled off into slavery. He is using Isaiah to write a message of hope. And I don't think it's a mistake here that this man, this mystery man, this man that God simply calls my servant, the my servant individual pops up four different times in that little section of Isaiah's book, 40 to 55. And each time that my servant individual shows up, it's constantly revealing something new about him. My servant is going to do this. My servant is going to suffer. My servant is going to die. My servant is going to be wise. My servant will be exalted. My servant will bring redemption. He will bring salvation. He will be the one upon whom salvation comes to my people. And with each encounter, the first time, the second time, the third time, it's just a build-up, it's a build-up, it's a build-up, and then it explodes in Isaiah chapter 53 when we come and we read these verses specifically that we just read at the beginning right before I prayed. And it's no different. The people who would have read Isaiah's book the first time would have come to that same question. Who on earth is capable of doing these things? Who is capable of bearing our griefs? Who is capable of carrying our sorrows? Who is capable of receiving strickenness from God, smittenness from God, affliction from God, wounds for our transgressions, being crushed by God, having chastisement poured out upon him, iniquity poured out upon him, oppression poured out upon him? And why on earth is he not going to open his mouth? Because if you read the rest of Isaiah 53, what you would see is he's actually receiving something unjust. He's not stricken, afflicted, and smitten because he had done wrong. He is receiving these things and he is perfectly innocent. Oppression and judgment come his way. He's not going to have a generation who flows beyond him. He was stricken for the transgression of God's people. His grave is going to be made with the wicked, with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. When you read Isaiah chapter 53, in a nutshell, you're supposed to read that and step back and go, who on earth is this guy? Why is this happening to him? And who is this? And you can almost see, like in my mind's eye, I, I, because the scriptures say this, as the prophets were hearing from God and receiving visions from God, and as God was leading them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they were writing the scriptures, it was like this. Paul uses this language, but it's like they could, there was a glass in front of them, a window in front of them, and they could, they could see some stuff that was going on, but it wasn't just a clear pane of glass. They couldn't step forward. Like Isaiah in that time couldn't have come, he didn't come forward and go, you know what, I know that here, you know, in several hundred years, there's actually going to be an a guy named Jesus, born, born Mary. He's going to be a virgin. He's going to be of Nazareth. He's going to be a carpenter. He, he couldn't quite do that, but what he did know is he could see through a glass dimly, and he could look forward and go, okay, there, there's somebody coming. There's an individual that's coming, and I can just see him almost just stepping back and, like, kicking back that Barco lounger and just, you know, right, leaning his head back going, man, 
Who is this guy? Who is this guy? This guy's going to do something miraculous. Yes, he's going to be afflicted. Yes, he's going to suffer. But upon him, the weight of sin will be poured out. Why? So that some people, God's people, will be able to be made righteous. And so in our movie, as this plans out, as you just saw Isaiah scribbling this stuff down and, and leaning back going, man, I don't know exactly who this is. I can't, can't point a face out of a crowd, but I, but I see that something awesome is going to be done at some point in the future. This is all part of God's plan, plan A from the beginning. Then you just see him, just a smile coming across his face as the joy of the Lord just overwhelms him knowing God has not left his people to suffer and die in their sin. And then as he's smiling because God is providing salvation in this future individual, this future my servant, fades to black. And what do we do? We come back to Acts chapter 8. So we see that this one, this individual, this my servant character is leading us to that right place, to that question, the question that we're supposed to be asking, who is this man? And when we come back and we jump back to Acts chapter 8, what we see now, I'm going to jump back into Acts 32, or Acts chapter 8, verse 32. What I want to do is pick back up where the Ethiopian eunuch is reading, and I want you to see what Philip does and the way he guides the Ethiopian eunuch. Because this is what the New Testament does. It goes back and it grabs these truths from the Old Testament. And what only the Old Testament saints could see through a glass dimly, the New Testament comes like a big rag full of Windex, comes and it sprays all over that window and it just wipes it down clear, so clear to where it doesn't even look like glass is there. And the New Testament comes and just moves all of that dimness language and goes this person specifically you want to know who it is let me tell you who it is so look at verse 32 there now the passage of the scripture that the ethiopian eunuch was reading was this like a sheep he was led to the slaughter like a lamb before it cheer is silent so he opens not his mouth and in his humiliation justice was denied him who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from him the eunuch comes and asks the question that we all should be asking about whom I ask you does the prophet say this is he talking about himself or is he talking about someone else who is this guy and what does Philip say to him This is the money verse right here, verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So all the way back in the 700s A.D., as God was leading and weaving this story of redemption, there's no mistake about it. Right there, basically, what Philip just did, pulled out the rag, pulled out the can of Windex, glass is clean. You don't have to wonder anymore. Isaiah 53 isn't just talking about some superhuman, some guy who is awesome, who's going to be afflicted even though he probably shouldn't have been, and then that's just sort of the end of the story. No, Isaiah 53 is decidedly, clearly, loudly, 
in a screaming voice saying Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus Christ. And so what Philip does is he looks at the Ethiopian eunuch and says, Brother, you couldn't have landed upon a more providential verse in all of the Old Testament. Let me tell you something. When you're reading about this individual, the suffering servant of God from Isaiah 53, you are reading about Jesus Christ himself. Why? Because he was going to be like the lamb led to the slaughter, dying on the cross, shedding his life's blood so that you could be made right. And he didn't receive this affliction because he had done something wrong. He is the spotless lamb of God. He is the Passover lamb, Exodus chapter 12. He is the perfect substitute that makes us right with the father, Genesis 22. And so, Philip steps into this moment, this God-ordained, spirit-filled moment, sees his chance, and he pounces on it and says, listen, what you need is the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, this teaches us something, right? Because what is going on with the Ethiopian eunuch? This guy isn't some pagan. He's not some lost-in-the-sauce guy who has no clue about anything. This is a religious dude. Ethiopian eunuch. Very devout. Traveling from Ethiopia through desert wilderness to get up to Jerusalem so he could worship. That takes time in those days. This would have been like a multi-month trip. Multi-dollar trip. A lot of food. A lot of storage. He's not stopping at the, at the Motel 8 along the way. He's packing his stuff with him. He's packing his food with him. He's packing servants with him. And the, what's being implied here is, like, this isn't necessarily the first time this guy has done this. This is a routine for him. Very devout. He's willing to count the cost. He's willing to say, I'm willing to go from Ethiopia up to Jerusalem because I want to be in the place where God dwells. I want to go to this place. He's a God-fearer. Yes, he is not a Jew, but there was a category for people from the Old Testament as these people who were Gentiles, not ethnic Jews, standing on the outside looking in going, I see the God of the Jews, and I believe him to be the true God. And so what they were called were God-fears. And Israel was to welcome these people in. This guy was a devout God-fear, spending time, spending money, spending goods. He was a church-going guy, right? He wasn't just devout in Ethiopia. He was devout in the sense of where he wanted to be where God was. He was going to Jerusalem. This guy was a Bible-toting dude. He had the prophet Isaiah. He had a scroll. He, he spent his money so that he could get a copy of Scripture. So what you have is Philip interacting, engaging with a very devout, religious, church-going Bible guy. And as he walks up on him in Isaiah, reading Isaiah 53, and the Ethiopian eunuch is reading verses 7 and 8 of Isaiah 53, and the eunuch turns to him and says, I ask you, man, what's going on here? Who, who is this about? Is it about Isaiah? Is it about somebody else? And what you don't see Philip doing is going, man, I see you're a very devout religious church-going Bible guy. It's just talking about, about this guy named the Messiah, Jesus, but ah, no big deal. I mean, you, you've got the church side right. You've got the Bible side right. You're the very, very devout right, and then I'm just off in your way. 
No, what you see is that from the scriptures here, that despite this guy being devout, despite this guy being a Bible guy, despite this guy, the Ethiopian eunuch, being a church-going guy, Philip realizes that, yes, this guy is very religious, but this guy is very Christless. That is why Philip takes the opportunity here from Isaiah 53 under the inspiration of the Spirit leading him to this place. And as this guy opens up, I mean, he couldn't have opened up to a better portion of the Scriptures. But what does he do? He opens up to that portion of Scriptures. And what we see here is that like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before a shear is a silence, so he opens not his mouth. This man is going to receive humiliation. Justice is going to be denied him. And Philip says, brother, this guy is talking about Jesus Christ and you need Jesus Christ. I love that phrase. He told him the good news about Jesus. He told him the good news about Jesus. See, what you can get from Isaiah 53 is you can get the good news about Good Friday. Right? Today's Sunday. Yesterday, Saturday, Friday. So we celebrated Good Friday as part of Holy Week. What makes Good Friday so good? Good Friday is so good because on Good Friday, the Messiah was put to death. Now, to a world outside of Christianity, that is insane. For those of us who have been saved, it is good. Because we know that that punishment, that suffering, that affliction that was poured out on Christ should have been poured out on us. But it wasn't poured out on us. It was poured out on Christ. It was poured out on Christ when he was pinned to the tree upon that cross. So Good Friday is good because what we see is that there is an actual wrath from God towards sin and you and I, if we were to stand before God in an attempt to receive the wrath from God that we deserve for our sins, we would not withstand. We would be burnt to a crisp. The glory and the holiness of God cannot have sin within its presence. If you and I tried to stand before a holy God without being covered by the righteous shed blood of Jesus Christ, you and I would be incinerated. But what makes Good Friday so good is that Jesus stood in the gap for us. He was the mediator that we were just singing about. And he comes and he stands in that gap. And as he stands in the gap, the white, hot, furious wrath of God's anger towards sin because he is perfectly pure and perfectly holy is poured out in a blazing blast upon Christ on Good Friday. And then what does he do? He dies. He screams, It is finished. And he goes into the grave. See, the Ethiopian eunuch could gather some of that from Isaiah 53, but what makes Good Friday so good is that Easter Sunday comes on its heels. Because Jesus just wasn't some other guy dying on the cross. Good Friday is good because Easter Sunday is awesome. Easter Sunday is the day that Christ comes bursting out of the grave. Satan, sin, and death have no hold on him. And that's what Philip is doing. He's like, listen, man, the Isaiah 53 is good, but let me tell you about the good news about Jesus. Because Isaiah 53 leads us to that person who is going to be crushed by the will of God, but it also shows us that there is one who will be exalted, and who's going to be exalted is the same servant. In his humiliation and receiving affliction, For our sins, he will be exalted. Paul uses this language in Philippians chapter 2. That yes, he poured himself out to death in obedience to God the Father by even dying on the cross. But guess what? Rest assured, he will be exalted. Because on Sunday morning, when he come bursting forth out of the grave, 
It was a clarion call, a trumpet blast that Jesus Christ has victory over death. Death came into the world because Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 3 said, I'm going to believe Satan's lie over God's truth. And from that moment, the world was dumped on its head. Satan's kingdom was having its rule, its reign, its way amongst God's creation, skewing everything. But in Genesis chapter 3, there was this promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. But yes, the serpent's going to bruise the hill of this one, but there's going to come one who's going to come bursting out of the grave. He's going to take his hill, and he's going to grind it and smash it on the head of that serpent, that evil one, the prince of the power of the air. And through that smashing of the serpent's head, victory over Satan, sin, and death will be had. And that is what is exactly going on here in Acts chapter 8. Now, again, notice what doesn't happen as, we're, as, we, as we wrap this up. What doesn't happen is you don't see the Ethiopian eunuch going, man, that's pretty sick. Ooh, on Ethiopia. And off he goes. Like, you don't see that happening. Like, say, thanks, Philip. Weird guy. Where'd you come from? You know, you're just, I'm, I'm riding, you're running, you're talking. Like, what's, like, what just happened here? Like, you don't see that. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, man, look, I see some water right there. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. Boom, the eunuch goes away rejoicing. Why? What's going on here in the text is this, that we see baptism in this light as an outward expression of an inward change. The eunuch goes, good grief, man, okay, I believe. Like, it's all coming together. This, this, Philip just came and connected the dots for him. You want to know who's going on, who this guy is in Isaiah 53? It's Jesus, and there needs to be a response on your, on your behalf to this good news. Let me tell you about the good news of Jesus. Now, don't just take it up here. Don't just give mental assent to this good news about Jesus, but respond to it in some way. And that's what he does. In confessing Christ, the inward, heart, the inward nature of his heart goes away. It was once stony, but now it's made flesh. It was made soft, and through the preaching of the gospel, the gospel come, the gospel is applied, and the Ethiopian eunuch stands back and goes, I need to somehow outwardly express like what just happened here. Hey, there's some water. Philip, baptize this guy. Bam, bam, up, off they go. And we get a little example there, right in Acts chapter 8, of someone interacting, encountering one of the most glorious portions of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 53, And what we see is that we see God in all of his majesty. We see man in his sin. And we see that Christ steps in through the preaching of the gospel through Philip. And as he preaches the gospel to him, he says, let me tell you the good news about Jesus. And we see that the eunuch responds rightly in repenting and placing his faith in Christ, baptizing, outward expression, boom, off he goes down the road rejoicing. Why? Because salvation has just come to him. And that's the good news of Easter. The good news of Easter, the reason why we celebrate is because for most of us here in this room, that is our story in some way, shape, or form. Right? We, we, have, we have somehow a story like this. I was running a hellbound race. God orchestrated somebody in my life with enough guts to come and open their mouth and saying, bro, you're heading down the path to hell. Here's the good news about Jesus. The Holy Spirit somehow takes that guy's stumbling and bumbling words as applied to our heart, and then the trajectory that we were on heading toward hell is completely rearranged, and so now we're no longer going this way, but because of the Holy Spirit empowering the words of someone who told us about the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes, applies, dead heart, made alive, now I'm on a new trajectory. I now am ambassador for Christ. 
Now I'm traveling the path towards heaven. Now I have the Spirit of God dwelling within me. And that's the good news of Easter because those things could not be true if Christ did not rise from the grave. If Christ was not resurrected from the dead, we were most to be pitied. What on earth are we doing here? But because Christ did rise from the grave, we do have a hope of salvation. So let me challenge you guys with this here. My assumption is that most of us here are probably believers, believers in Jesus Christ. Today is not a day to be squandered. We have 52 weeks out of the year where we come together and we celebrate. And two of them sort of peak pretty high on the scale, right? Christmas and Easter. Christmas is awesome. I mean, I'm not, I'm not here to downplay, downplay Christmas. Right? The Son of God, a member of the Trinity, cloaked in flesh, born of the Virgin, coming down. I mean, that's, that's crazy. That's awesome. That's good. We don't, we don't just sweep up that doctrine and toss it out the window, but brothers and sisters, the good news is, if Christ, if the Son of God just came just to live on earth and to accomplish nothing, then, I mean, I mean that's, that's good, but what's good is this Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Don't waste your Resurrection Sunday today. Most of us are going to be in places around people who are clueless. Clueless. Running a hellbound race and happy about it. Not giving two rips that they're on this trajectory going this way. So as we pray here, my prayer is going to be for you is that you would go, okay, God, I see uh, Christ is the Old Testament, Christ is the new, most likely some sort of what, Charlton Heston movie is probably going to be playing today on the TV or something. So use these things, use conversation. Most people have a, a modicum of, of Christianity still floating in their world. Find that door and nudge your way into it and just say something good about Jesus Christ today. Show up with a smile on your face to your family event when everyone else is showing up with a frown because they're at the family event. And then you can show up with a smile on your face and be like, well, why are you so happy? Man, I've... Christ is risen. They're going to look at you probably like you're a freak. But you've just said something good about Christ. Maybe that cousin that you hardly ever talk to over in the corner, maybe God is doing something like in his life like the Ethiopian eunuch. And he's going to hear you say something about Christ to your uncle who's going to look at you like you're a loon. But your cousin over in the corner is going to react, and maybe that's going to be the conversation where you get to talk about Jesus with him. Now, for some of you, you may not be believers here in this day, so what is your response to this? My, my challenge to you is this. Have you responded to this type of good news that you find within, within the, the, the accounts that we see in Acts? My challenge to you is that Jesus Christ was a historical figure who was both God and man, 100% God, 100% man, who stood in the gap, perfectly mediating on both parties because he was 100% God he could mediate on God's behalf to us because he's 100% man he could stand in the gap between man and God and he could mediate on man's behalf to God and the way that he mediated was this he followed the father's will Isaiah 53 says it was the will of God to crush his son why because that was the only hope of salvation don't give mental assent to this merely but respond in repentance and faith. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you. We are excited for this day. God, I pray that you would shake the church, the big C, capital C church, you would shake the church loose from its stupor. That God, that you would empower us in these days ahead. The days are coming rapidly when freedom to be able to freely talk of Christ will be going away. And God, our hope in those days is to stand on your unshakable word, to speak boldly the words of Jesus Christ, that as we interact with those around us, that we can come and say, hey, let me tell you about the good news of Jesus.
God, help me. Lead me in this way. Lead my brothers and sisters that have been hearing this message today in this way so that we would be used by Christ to expand the kingdom of King Jesus seeing lost people transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. God, we love you. We thank you. We rejoice that he is risen. Christ is risen. Satan, sin, and death crushed to death. Christ stands as the champion, as the victor. And God disturbs our hearts because sin no longer is our master. But Christ is our master. So God, we love you and we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name.